You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to the ABA section of Antitrust Law. This is Dennis Rothschild, and I'm the host for today's podcast. Joining me now, I have Tony Aaron and Pooja Patel. Welcome to the show. Tony, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Uh, I'm a partner with the law firm of Ice Miller in Indianapolis, Indiana, where I have a practice of a general business, corporate practice, as well as a primarily a antitrust advisory practice and defend the occasional government investigation. And I'm a vice chair of the Food and Ag Committee. Great. Thank you. And Pooja? Hello, everyone. My name is Pooja Patel. I am an associate at the law firm of Allen and Overy, um, based in New York, where my practice focuses mainly on antitrust merger work. I do do some um, antitrust litigation. And I think what sort of got me involved with the Agriculture and Food Committee, I have done some deals in the food space, and I've always sort of been interested in this industry. So uh, look forward to continuing to working with you guys. Thank you so much. And so I'm a partner at Borden Ladner Gervais in Toronto in the Competition and Foreign Investment Review Group. And my practice is quite diverse, all within the antitrust space. My big interest in this space came from doing the merger of Canada's largest grocery retailer and Canada's largest drugstore retailer, uh, start back in 2013. And I've developed an interest in the food and ag space. And now I'm lucky enough to be a vice chair on the committee and lucky enough to be hosting this podcast. So my practice includes mergers as well as what we call reviewable matters, things like monopolization claims, as well as pure antitrust litigation, cartels, class actions, and the like. But quite diverse, anything antitrust related, I'm there for it. So why don't I turn it over to Tony, who's going to get us started. Great. Thanks a lot for inviting us today. I've been involved in the agriculture and agribusiness industry for about 10 years, uh, representing clients ranging from producers to trade associations to agribusinesses, and uh, have also spent a lot of time talking to some of the ag policy folks and addressing some of those issues and thinking about those issues. And while there are lots of policy issues in the agricultural industry, one of the, the biggest picture issues is really, how do we feed the world? The problem is stated in a lot of different ways, but it kind of comes down to this. By the year 2040 or 2050, we're going to have a world population of somewhere between 9 or 10 billion people, about a 25 to 30 percent increase from where we are today. Keep in mind that almost all of that growth, population growth, will occur in the developing world coupled with increased urbanization, as well as increased income levels, and people's diets are going to change. They're going to want more food, more better food, and more protein. That means the demand for food is going to increase substantially. In fact, it's going to increase more than 30%. It may as much as double. And we're going to do that in a resource-constrained world with water pressures, or potentially lack of water in some regions, and probably only 2 to 5% more arable or productive land. So this means that if we're going to double our food production or increase it by 70%, technology is going to have to be the solution through increased yields, reducing input requirements, increasing available land, perhaps through vertical farming, and any number of other technological improvements. Solving this issue is one of the issues that really motivates many in the industry. 
we all know what the negative impacts of food insecurity are. Hunger, famine, death, poverty, and war, and unrest. But let's also face it, there's a lot of money to be made in the industry, and you can't forget about that. So solving this particular problem, has, I would suggest, has likely been one of the motivations for the several, a number of the large agricultural mergers, Dow DuPont, Bayer Monsanto, Syngenta, ChemChina. These new technologies are expensive to develop, and scale helps. While while the solutions are going to be multifaceted, one of those new technologies is digital agriculture, which became an issue in the Bear Monsanto transaction. Like most industries, producers and companies are still trying to figure out how to use the data, but there's a lot of data being collected, whether it's from farm equipment or other sensors. With improved knowledge, the hope is that digital agriculture can be one of those technological improvements that allows producers to be more efficient in crop selection, harvest, using their resources, water, and fertilizer. If you think about it, historically, a farmer, a producer, got knowledge by farming their land, looking at their experience over the past year, and then making their decision digital agriculture, we can capture that information on a broad scale and then pass that information on to the next generation. So like most big data projects, we're still in the early stages, but lots of companies are working to collect the data. In fact, this uh, digital agriculture became a point of divergence between the EU and the U.S. in the Bear Monsanto transaction. But Pooja, tell us a little bit more about the three major transactions. I think sort of understanding the Bayer-Monsanto deal, it's helpful to understand where the industry was before that deal. Um, so for, I think, many years, the agribusiness was dominated by what they called the big six firms. Monsanto, Bayer, BASF, Syngenta, Dow, and DuPont. Um, now in 2016, the big six became the big five with the merger of Dow and DuPont. Um, meanwhile, Syngenta also combined with ChemChina to become a bigger of the big five. But interestingly enough, neither of those deals did the U.S. regulators focus on what we just described as data, the data assets of either company. Dow DuPont, the DOJ, focused on the herbicide and intesticides business of each of the firms and required various divestitures. In ChemChina, Syngenta, the focus was again on herbicides. So interestingly, I think Bayer Monsanto was really the first big agribusiness deal where there was a focus on data alone. So very interesting. And the data perspective and the concerns about data are really an emerging area. And it's interesting, you know, coming from Canada, we have the Competition Bureau just put out what they're calling their their big data white paper in which they're really focusing on, you know, what the implications are of big data and what the what the competition bureau or any competition regulators role is to be and if they have to change what they're doing and change their focus as they're looking at these new frontiers of consolidation there's also the potential for digital cartels but in this case in the Bayer Monsanto case you know we have this emerging digital agriculture field and Looking at some of the literature from the producer's perspective, although it appears that in the, you know, even in the Bayer Monsanto deal, they did require the divestiture of the nascent digital agriculture program, 
you know, it wasn't necessarily a huge focus of the investigation. But the producers are saying that in order to increase yields going forward and in order to better their business models going forward, they see digital agriculture, which can, you know, roughly be said as, you know, aggregating huge amounts of data and using it to determine what the best times for planting are, what the best crop rotations are, what the best, you know, specific type of seed for a specific type of soil and a specific climate is likely to be that's likely to maximize the potential productivity of any given producer's land, that kind of digital agriculture is going to be a huge issue moving forward. And the concern with this recent merger and with any mergers is, are we consolidating that level of data in the hands of too few companies such that just as we've seen complaints regarding the data practices of the big, big tech players, the Googles, the Apples, are we going to have a situation where Bayer Monsanto, for example, or Bayer Monsanto and perhaps Dow DuPont are in a position where they have such a huge aggregation of data that they can control what they feed out to the producers and allow them and effectively dictate what seeds they can buy and how much they have to pay for them. That's a significant concern arising from this merger. You know, Dennis, you could argue that the buyer Monsanto deal is maybe even worse than a Google or a Facebook because Google and Facebook aren't the ones selling you the products, right? So... Once Bayer and Monsanto find out, hey, this farmer's having some sort of weed damage to his crops, his or her crops, I should say, immediately they could, Bayer and Monsanto could pop an ad into their iPhone saying, hey, buy our products, we'll fix your problem. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, the counterpoint on this that the regulators would say is that they forced the divestiture to BASF of the program. And so BASF is going to be BASF's digital agriculture program, according to the regulators, was really just getting off the ground. It really didn't have much R&D behind it. It didn't have much in the way of any sort of usable patents or anything really useful. So the, the idea that the regulators have and the American, the DOJ, the EC, the Canadian Competition Bureau, and you know th those are the three that I know for certain, but probably the other international regulators that were involved in this review, they would say that this is not a change because they've, yes, Bayer and Monsanto have combined, but now BASF is going to be an effective competitor in this space. The concern, this, this ties into another concern, not just with the digital agriculture part, but in fact with the entire merger, is that it's actually more of a vertical concern in that Bayer and Monsanto coming together, they're improving their ability to include the seeds themselves, the herbicides, insecticides, the seed treatments, they're vertically integrating to the point where they may be able to, you know, really dictate what, you know, if you want any sort of specific seed, you may have a very limited choice of the companies that you can purchase from. And the big concern that I'm seeing, we can argue about the divestitures and whether they were sufficient I don't think anyone could doubt that there certainly was a significant structural remedy demanded here. I mean, you know, there was significant divestitures, but there's a concern that this vertical integration could actually, and it already is in some respects, can extend to actually the, the parties that are actually selling directly to the producers. 
and you know the Bayer Monsanto, the big four can buy up the producers and potentially even on a very small regional level. Looking at it from Canada, we talk about you know canola seeds in Western Canada. If Bayer Monsanto, which you know is already after the divestitures between Bayer Monsanto BASF. You know, they're still going to have probably at least 50% of the market share for canola seeds in canola seeds for producers and the inputs for those seeds in Western Canada. If they can go ahead and buy up the local suppliers, they're going to really get a stranglehold on that market. And it's a, you know, that's another part of this merger going from five to four that although there's still going to be other effective competitors, the prospect of more vertical integration is potentially very concerning. Certainly, and there there is, in the U.S., a long history of consolidation over the last several years of the regional seed producers being acquired by the larger international seed companies. You mentioned the structural remedy, but at least with respect to digital agriculture, and there's lots of fascinating privacy issues that we could talk about as well, probably in a separate podcast related to who owns the farmer data and who gets to use it and so forth. But at least initially with respect to digital agriculture, Pooja, the EU was going to allow a behavioral remedy. And then conveniently about the time of the spring meeting, it started to to change and you came out with a structural remedy and and so did the DOJ. And why do you think there was at least an initial difference in approach? I mean, I think this may reflect sort of the changing of the times amongst the DOJ and FTC in terms of their views of structural remedies. I think, you know, looking at sort of the history, the DOJ has done a little bit of flip-flopping on its position. I think at times it's taken a bit of a firmer position on structural remedies versus behavioral. And then I think other times it's sort of softened its position. So, and I think this latest move was just a reflection of, you know, I think it was in 2017 where the head of the DOJ's antitrust division, Macon Delrahim, made a few public comments saying, you know, that the DOJ will take a bit of a firmer view on, I should say, behavioral remedies. And I think this was sort of a reflection on this. I, Dennis, I wonder if you, you may be a better place to talk about the EU position. As European as Canada is, my, you know, I think that no doubt that the EU and, you know, from personal experience and from public consent agreements in Canada, I can say that, you know, there's certainly still a willingness to entertain behavioral remedies in Canada and in Europe that probably exceeds what the current leadership of the DOJ is interested in. I do think that, you know, what was expressed by Mr. Delrahim is not new thinking necessarily in terms of structural versus behavioral remedies. I mean, I think that, you know, in any negotiation regarding merger remedies, the regulator is always going to say and have a legitimate point that is the cost of enforcing this behavioral remedy going to end up resulting in any net benefit? And is the behavioral remedy actually going to be effective? I think that what we're seeing here in in the U.S. is, you know, a a stronger position in that respect. Now, whether that extends to all other mergers, I don't know, but it it appears as though, at least in this case, we've actually seen that philosophy reflected and the original European inclination to accept a behavioral remedy, which they, you know, they absolutely were. It was in the original 
consent agreement or you know the the original judgment there was going to be a behavioral remedy with respect to the digital ag and after i would say largely in response to the american demands it was converted to the full divestiture of those assets in the r&d and behind them as opposed to the licensing and the behavioral remedy that was going to be imposed by the ec and you know interestingly monsanto had previously agreed to a behavioral remedy in a deal 10 years ago. That deal involved, Monsanto had agreed to acquire a company called Delta and Pine. And both companies were involved in the market for cottonseed traits. They agreed, I think, to divest Delta and Pine's cottonseed trade business. But also in the background of this, so traits are sold, I'm sure you guys know, uh, traits are sold to seed manufacturers who use those traits to sort of manufacture within their seeds and the traits will help sort of protect against various, I guess, weeds and insects. So I guess at the time, Monsanto was engaged in this practice where it would force its seed customers to agree to not use any other company, any of its competitors' traits or combine Monsanto's traits with its competitors' traits. So as part of this consent decree with Delta and Pine, Monsanto agreed that it wouldn't engage in this sort of licensing, at least with respect to cotton seeds. But I guess after this deal had closed, Monsanto continued to do this with other types of seeds, not surprisingly. And I guess there were still a lot of seed manufacturers that were complaining about this practice. So I wonder if that also maybe played a role in the DOJ's sort of firm position, at least on this deal. Right. You know, that kind of conduct really speaks to when we're looking at the concerns of the producers, the farmers, you know, there is clear evidence and data to show that in Europe, Canada, and the U.S., you know, farm income and, you know, the income derived from crop production has increased in recent years, but it is not keeping pace with the increase in the costs for the inputs. And a big part of that or probably the vast majority of that are the inputs that come from the big four, now big four, previously big five and big six, certain other fertilizer companies that also provide necessary inputs. But there's clearly a reason why, although there's no doubt there's been innovation, whether it's through GMOs or other innovative technologies, but the profits are not increasing. Revenues may be increasing, but not as fast as the cost. Well, and in fact, right now with commodity prices, revenues aren't going up either. I talked to a lot of my friends who are producers and it's tough out there. Input costs are up and commodity prices are down and it's not not as good as it was several years ago when commodity prices were up. Do you think that the difference between the EU and the, and the DOJ is a difference in political outlook or philosophy, or is it perhaps a difference in the competitive landscapes? I think that in terms of competitive landscape, I don't think that with respect to digital agriculture, and that's what I'm talking about, clearly there are differences in the competitive landscape generally in, you know, Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Talking about but, digital but, agriculture. But yeah, with respect to digital ag, I don't think at this point there's a significant difference that has developed yet. In terms of the market, the competitive landscape, I think that it's it really is, as I understand it. And granted, my understanding is is certainly not as great as many others may be. But my understanding is that the competitive landscape isn't that different. But I do think that there's probably 
some degree of whether it's political or philosophical difference that led the EC to be satisfied with the behavioral remedy on digital and the U.S. to demand a true structural remedy. Yeah, I mean, if you sort of look at the changes and even the DOJ antitrust merger guidelines, you'll see sort of a changing of the tides amongst the different administrations. So in the 2004 merger guidelines during the time of the Bush administration, there is some language in the merger guidelines saying that structural remedies are preferred to behavioral remedies. Now then turning to the 2011 guidelines from the Obama administration, those guidelines sort of struck that language about this blanket statement about the preference for structural remedies um, and instead took a more softer approach saying that, you know, in certain factual circumstances, the best choice may be to use a behavioral remedy. And then, of course, now with the change into the Trump administration, we have these statements from Macon Delorheim saying that the government will take a bit of a firmer position on structural remedies. So, I mean, it's hard to say, but it's sort of these patterns are, are interesting, I think. It is interesting to look at outside of the ag space, you know, the significant scrutiny put upon American-based tech companies Let's go with Google as the top example by the EC and, you know, big data kind of scrutiny by the EC. And yet in this review, the big data component of it ends up getting a more of a not a pass because there's still, you know, there's no indication that the EC would have, you know, ignored it altogether. But a somewhat softer remedy was demanded by the EC than the U.S., whereas the U.S. and, frankly, Canada have been quite a bit softer on Google and other tech companies in respect of big data matters than the EC has been. So it's an interesting change. It is an interesting change, and part of me wonders if that's the difference between consumer data broad-based, driven by privacy concerns, at least in part in the ability to predict or sway consumer behavior versus what might be perceived to be a little bit more industrial type of production data, but still ability to know what a farmer needs and advertise and or even price accordingly because you're providing that farmer with their farm management system and have all of their data in terms of what they're using and how much and how much what their yield is down to a very small geographic area, you know, quarter acre maybe, or eventually less, could become a powerful marketing tool, a tremendous technological tool to solve the problem to kind of bring us back to the beginning. But a lot of potential power. And I do find it interesting that that almost the two regimes, the U.S. and the EU, have flip-flopped on the consumer versus industrial data. So I guess we will probably see more developments in, in the future, both in, in ag and otherwise. Tony, understanding that, I guess we're sort of running short on time here, but with having worked in the agribusiness for as long as you have, I'm curious what you think the sort of implications of this deal will be going forward for both, you know, the more industrial farmers and also the small time sort of mom and pop type farmers. Absolutely. I think certainly producers are concerned about consolidation in the industry, but 
there is a lot of innovation happening even in the regional seed companies. We work with a regional seed company that kind of operates in the greater Midwest, Indiana, over to Iowa, up to Minnesota, and they're out there developing seed varieties for those specific microclimates and doing it using traits that are developed by the large seed companies and mixing and matching those traits to address a particular climatic region. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of excitement out there. There's also a lot of concern. Farmers, while large in many cases compared to large multinationals, are really small. And I work with the Agricultural Data Coalition on really data issues and privacy and, you know, making farmers aware, just like all consumers should be aware, when you put your data out there, somebody else is probably going to use it. And how can you actually be able to retrieve it? So I think those are not necessarily antitrust always, but privacy and the data ownership issues that are of concern to many in the industry. Right. As we're wrapping up here and we think about the implications of this deal I think that what concerns me and what concerns our producer clients is really the question, there are numerous concerns, but one of the the biggest personal ones for me is as we get down to these four mega players, are we going to have a situation where not through any sort of illicit collusion, but more of a conscious parallelism, to use a a fun antitrust term, the big four are going to be able to kind of make their stake in certain areas and really focus their R&D, their investments, their buying of the small seed companies in certain areas such that we end up having Bayer Monsanto is is strong in one type of, you know, all the way up and down the chain, vertically integrated in one type of crop. And, you know, Dow DuPont is focusing on another. And we end up in a situation where, The big four have insulated themselves each in their own spaces and truly competition is deeply negatively affected. And in that circumstance, what are antitrust regulators to do? I mean, I guess that would be the subject of another podcast, what they could do in that circumstance, but it's certainly not as easy as stopping a merger. It would be a much more difficult situation for any antitrust regulator to deal with if that were to occur. Some food for thought, am I right? I think you are. So this concludes another podcast from the ABA section of Antitrust Law. If you like what you heard, please find us and rate us in Apple Podcasts. I'm Dennis Rothschild from Borderlander Gervais in Toronto. Tony Aaron with Ice Miller in Indianapolis. And I'm Pooja Patel from A&O, New York. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.